0: Father, we thank you for what you have to say to us by your spirit this morning. Give us hearts that are ready to hear, we pray. Amen. Amen. I wonder, how do you feel that you are doing as a Christian this morning, if you are one? How do you feel that you are getting on in the Christian life? What, I wonder, do you think that God thinks about you just now? Did you read your Bible or pray this morning? How do you feel about that if you did? How do you feel about that if you didn't? Did you lose your rag with your kids if you have them or keep your cool this morning? How does God feel about that? Were you in a rush? If you drove, did you stick to the new 20 miles per hour speed limits? Were you on time to the service or were you late again? How does God feel about that? You wonder. What must God think of you this morning, of me? What must he make of all these things? And how, I wonder, do you feel that you are doing compared to the person next to you as a Christian? Maybe you don't even know their name, they're they're here so infrequently. You're in a home group, you go most weeks, they're not. But they're a church member and come to church meetings, and you're not. You serve in lots of different ways, you're not really sure how or whether they're serving. Or maybe it's the other way around. You've heard them pray out loud in meetings. Your prayers could never be as good as holy. How do you feel that you're doing as a Christian compared to the person next to you? How would you rate them on God's scorecard? How do you think he would rate you? If you're anything like me, questions like these spin around your subconscious all the time. And I think the letter of Galatians and the passage we're in this morning that Tim just read for us has much to say about this topic. But before we get into the passage, it might just be worth pausing to admit uh, that a scene like the one we face here perhaps makes us feel a little uncomfortable, because most of us, the awkward Brits among us at least, don't really like public confrontation. Paul standing up in front of everyone in verse 11 and opposing Peter to his face? Well, That sounds like a clash of egos that I do not want to be in the room for. But a step further, maybe we're not just glad we're not in the room. Maybe we wonder whether this clash should have happened at all. Shouldn't Paul have held his tongue, been a bit more gracious, gone to Peter in private, been a bit more accepting, forgiving of the opinions of others? Is it not really bad for the gospel? when Christians cannot get along in public? Who's got the energy for fighting sin and Satan out there in the world when we're too busy arguing with each other in here about tiny things? But what went wrong here, as we will see as we dig into these verses, was not a problem of clashing cultures, egos, internal politics, insubstantial things. It was an issue of gospel truth, we see in verse 14. And so as we come to a passage like this, as probably largely quite a conflict-averse people, we must bear in mind that sometimes confrontation is okay, sometimes it is right, sometimes it is necessary for the sake of the gospel. Not every conflict within and between churches, is over internal politics, is squabbles over secondary things, is a clash of leaders who should have known better, should have been humbler, should have stayed off Twitter. Sometimes it's an issue of gospel truth. Sometimes the gospel is at stake, as we shall see in Galatians chapter 2 and across this letter in the weeks to come. So let's ride that uncomfortable, conflict averse feeling as we dive into this passage. And we'll see two things as we look at this passage together. And the first is Peter's problem. He was living out of line with the gospel. Peter's problem. He was living out of line with the gospel. In verses 11 to 14. I should probably just say that Cephas, in verse 11, is the apostle Peter, more commonly known as Peter. We've seen already in chapter 1 that he was known to as Cephas. So when you see Cephas, that's Peter. Um, Look down with me at verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he, Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles the church in Antioch was like no other church at that point in history. This young church was a melting pot of cultures, ethnicities, religious backgrounds, traditions. It contained contained many Jewish believers who'd grown up in the Jewish faith and traditions and converted to Christ. And it contained many Gentile believers who'd converted from Greek and other pagan backgrounds. And they had enjoyed what seemed like extraordinary fellowship. Jewish believers knowing that they need not follow the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament any longer, that Christ had fulfilled these good laws about eating, washing, cooking, and remembering Peter's vision before he was sent to Cornelius. And so Jewish believers, knowing, sitting together, united with Gentile believers around the Lord's table and around their ordinary dining tables, relating to Gentiles now, not as foreigners, but as brothers and sisters in the Lord. This church was a church like no other, blazing a trail of gospel freedom and gospel unity. But not so much anymore, it turns out because a delegation had arrived in verse 12 from Jerusalem, purporting to be from the Apostle James, and they had caused a stir. Do you realize what problems you're causing? You know this has gotten back to Jerusalem, don't you? And it is great, this gospel fellowship. It's wonderful. It's what we want. Of course it is. Guys, you you need to slow it down a bit. It's, It's not like it is here in Antioch, back in Jerusalem. We've got Jews really close to converting, maybe just over the line, But when they hear that you, the holy people of God, are interacting with low-life Gentiles like there's no difference, like we're not set apart, like we're not God's holy people, that's causing real issues. It's a stumbling block. So maybe just, just slow it down for the sake of fragile Jewish converts, for the sake of the gospel, perhaps they said. And Peter listened. Feeling the pressure, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. He shrank back from his Gentile brother and sister believers. And of course, his actions had a big impact, I'm sure, more than he intended, more than he realized. For verse 13, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. In this church that had once been gloriously united, a split was beginning to form. Gentile Christians in the red corner, Jewish Christians in the blue. Why? End of verse 12. Because he was afraid. Peter shrank back because he was afraid, not because he was convinced by a theological argument. Not even because he was concerned for the fragile faith of recent or potential Jewish converts back home. He shrank back because he was scared. Scared of those lobbying him, those who belonged to the circumcision group that we will hear about more later on in the letter. He did not want to get on the wrong side of this powerful faction. So he did what he was told. And here's the thing. It probably didn't seem like a very big deal. In fact, I'm almost certain it didn't, in Peter's mind. Who eats when and where and how and with whom hardly feels like a matter of first importance. And we as a congregation know well that matters of ethnic integration are complicated. Surely this can be worked out later. For now, best to go slow. Try to love everyone. Try to keep people on side. but there'd clearly been a bit of a chewing and fro uh, for both Peter and Paul. And when Paul found out what had happened, well, verse 11, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Strong words. Really, Paul? Is that not going a bit too far? But then verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Paul did not just think that Peter was making the wrong call in a tricky wisdom situation. He thought Peter was out of line with the truth of the gospel. Peter had not got a wisdom call wrong. He had moved off the tracks of the gospel entirely. He was committing hypocrisy. Verse 13, saying one thing, believing another. Verse 14, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish custom? Well, hang on a minute, Paul that's a bit much. You've gone a bit far, far, far there. Peter isn't forcing Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. He isn't putting any expectations on what other people should do. He's just changed what he's doing slightly. If other people follow him, well, that's their responsibility, right? Wrong, says Paul. For Paul sees where this will end. He sees Gentile Christians abandoned, by their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters who once dined with them, but are now not so willing to associate with them. Maybe these Gentile believers will think Christ isn't enough. After all, Jewishness is what's needed. Kosher, Sabbath, Holy Days, this is what we need to do if we want to be accepted by Christ. These Gentile believers may think. And to lead new, vulnerable believers to think that they must follow rules to be accepted by Christ, says Paul, is not a badly made wisdom call. It's to be on a different track from the gospel altogether. Think of the boss at work, um, so keen to talk up the new staff well-being initiative. Mental health, emotional health, it matters, it's important, we're going to take it seriously. Uh, they're all about taking a proper lunch break, working from home a couple of days a week, everyone leaving the office by 6pm, no emails at the weekend. They talk the talk, and to begin with, they lead. They start working home, from home once a week. You see them in the canteen at lunchtime, they leave at 6-ish, they stop sending emails on Sunday a few weeks in, they're still talking the talk in the public meetings. But they're still in the office at seven. Lunch has gone back to being a sandwich at their desk. The Sunday emails are back. And suddenly you're the only one on the team still trying to leave at around six, not logging on to your laptop on a Sunday night. And you're starting to feel a bit out of the loop. You're not the boss's go-to person anymore. And you're wondering, whether you just go back to the way that you used to work, like everyone else. It's so easy to believe one thing, but then to do another. And it's easier to live in a happy little land of rules than to live in gospel freedom. And for those of us with influence over others, it's easy to let our actions speak much louder than our words. To indicate what we think others should do, that we might not quite tell them they should do this. And for Peter to lead vulnerable new believers to think they had to follow the rules to be accepted by Jesus was not a badly made wisdom call. It was to be on a different track from the gospel altogether. What is it for you, I wonder? What are the little rules that you love to follow? the little rules that help you to feel okay before God. I must do a quiet time every morning. If I miss it, I feel guilty. If I do it, I feel good. If it's longer than normal, I feel really good. I must be doing personal evangelism. I have to be regularly talking to unbelievers about the gospel. If I miss an opportunity, if I wimp out, I'm devastated. If I do it, I'm full of self-praise. I must make myself useful to other people at church. If there's a cry for help, a need, a rota, I must offer my services. If I say no or I hesitate, I feel ashamed. If I do it, yes, I came to the rescue again. I must get to the meeting. I don't want to let people down. It's important that I'm there. If I don't make it, I failed. If I do, I'm one of the faithful. Probably all of those would be issues in my heart. I wonder if one of them or something else sticks for you. And for those of us with some influence, which is probably most of us, um, it's even worse. For we must ask ourselves what by our actions, our tone, our body language, the things we haven't said as much as the things we have said. Have we forced other people, other Christians to do You don't have to join a home group, become a church member, serve in this ministry, come to this event, speak to that person, go to that place. You don't have to, but you really should. And I do. It doesn't bear thinking about, does it? It's terrible for the other person. It risks them calling into question whether they really are a Christian, if they're aware that they are not following our rules, And it's terrible for me, because it suggests that I think that I need to follow these rules if I want God to accept me. To think that we need to follow the rules, to be accepted by God, to indicate to other believers that they need to follow the rules, to be accepted by God, is not a badly made wisdom call. It's to be on a different track from the gospel altogether. That's our first point. Our second point, Paul's challenge, carry on by faith in Christ. Paul's challenge, carry on by faith in Christ. From verses 15 to 21. Um, Look down with me at verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. There's no doubt for Paul that Peter believes, that Peter knows and has accepted the gospel. We who, he begins in verse 15. We too, in verse 16. Paul, Peter, all the believers are united in what they believe. What is that? Verse 16. A person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ with that word justified, our Paul takes us into the courtroom, to the defendant's box, the whole court gathered before God the judge to hear the verdict against the guilty sinner. And the judge slams down his gavel and he declares not guilty. This believer may walk away from court today, a free man, a free woman. Why? Because they've obeyed the works of the law. Because they passed the secret test because they came top or at least not bottom of the class no because they put their faith in Christ the judge declares they walk free because they trusted Christ and he has served their prison sentence for them this is the only way to be acquitted Verse 16, we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. There is one way and one way only to be found not guilty in the court of God and that is by claiming Christ who was found guilty in your place. This is what we believe says Paul. But we know that. We know that we're saved by faith, that it's Christ's death that paid for our sins. We've already become Christians, Paul. We get justification. But how do we live now? And it's with that question that we can go wrong, that Peter here went wrong. Because justification by faith is a past tense thing. It's a legal statement It's an event in history. It's something that God has said and done when we first turned to Christ. But look down with me at verse 16 and 17 and notice the grammar. We too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, do you notice the tenses? Maybe, will be, seeking to be. Justification by faith is a past tense thing, but it is also a present tense thing and a future tense thing. Well, doesn't that mean that Peter was right after all? Justification isn't just past tense, it's not just a get out of jail free, go and live how you want now, pass. Well, isn't Peter right after all? How you live does matter. Maybe being more Jewish, sticking with the law, isn't such a bad idea after all. Maybe we should commit more to home group, get ourselves on a rotor or two, make sure we don't miss a meeting, so that we have come a little higher up God's rankings. But look again at verse 16 and consider how that present tense and future justification happens. We too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Precious treasures are contained in those words, brothers and sisters. Past justification, present justification, future justification happens by faith in Christ. There is no Work to do. Obedience to the law plays no part. We were saved by faith in Christ. We are being saved by faith in Christ. We will be saved by faith in Christ. There is no place in the life of the Christian for the question, Am I good enough for God? For the answer is no. In yourself, you never could be. But in Christ, Yes, in Christ, yes, you are. There is no place in the Christian life for measuring ourselves or each other against God's yardstick or our own, for it's all faith in Christ, just faith in Christ, only faith in Christ. We've been saved by faith in Christ. We go on living by faith in Christ. It's so simple and can be so hard to put into practice and just look at the imagery that Paul goes on to use in verse 19 Uh, for through the law he writes I died to the law so that I might live for God I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me the life I now live in the body I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me Can't read this and miss the extent of the change that has happened within us. We died with Christ. We live in Christ. It's drastically different. This isn't being fitted with a pacemaker, getting a new hip, getting a new pair of glasses, a little bit to help us on. This is a drastic change. We have died to trying to impress God. We've died to measuring whether we are good enough, whether we will be accepted by him. And we've taken up a whole new life of faith in Christ. A life in which faith is everything and works are nothing. And to get that wrong, says Paul, to lead others to get that wrong is not a wrongly made wisdom call is tantamount to standing at the foot of the cross and cursing Jesus like the worst of them. For verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. To believe the gospel, but to live our lives trying to impress God, is tantamount to laughing in the face, of our Saviour as He died. You started by faith. You must go on by faith. It's the only way. You don't need to try to impress God anymore. Think of the, um, the double leg amputee after weeks, months of, of learning how to move on all fours to crawl when they're not using their wheelchair. They have life, um, a life-changing discovery. They're, they're fitted with two bionic legs, but they won't use them. They refused to attach them each morning. They were doing so well. They were working so hard. They'd come so far learning to move on all fours. They'd found a way. There was so much progress that they had made, that they could make, if they kept on trying, if they kept working. They could use their bionic legs, they could learn to walk again, but no, they've come too far. They've worked too hard. They won't accept these legs. They don't need them to get around. And they just sit gathering dust in a corner of the room. It would be ridiculous, but so too would be continuing by works when we've been given salvation by faith. We've been saved by faith in Christ. We're to go on living by faith in Christ. We don't need to try to impress God anymore. It sounds straightforward. but We find it hard, don't we? I know I do. We find it hard to dismantle that scoreboard in our heads. How am I doing today before God? What must God think of me just now? We find it hard not to slip back into trying to impress God and not measuring other people by the yardstick of the law. I have so much to learn in this area, just a few tentative practical suggestions. I think the first, know that you can say no know that you can say no. You don't owe anyone anything. No one owes you anything. You owe Christ everything, but he's not asking you to pay him back. So when someone asks you to do something that isn't a direct command of Christ, you can say no, even if that's a really good thing for someone to do. Church won't fall apart because a ministry has to stop, because a meeting gets cancelled, God doesn't need you. The church doesn't need me. We don't need to impress God or each other with our commitment and our service. We can say no to things that aren't a direct command by Christ. We can learn to say no. And second, remember that your gifts are gifts. I used to um, work in school, and the language of sort of gifted and talented. It feels very uh, very intrinsic, very internal. But when you stop and think about it, gifts don't intrinsically belong to us. Of course they don't. They're gifts. That's what the word means. They've been given to us by God. And we so easily slip into self-congratulations when we use our gifts, when we feel that we've served well. I did a good job. I nailed it. God must be pleased with me. Praise the giver, not yourself. Praise the one who gave you that gift and enabled you to use it, placed you in circumstances where you could use it. Let's learn to rejoice in God when we've served well and not ourselves. Let's turn every blessing back to him in praise. A thank you can just begin to shift our minds off of ourselves and what we've done and back onto God and what he's done. So remember that your gifts are gifts. And then finally, fix your eyes on Christ. He has done it all. Fix your eyes on Christ. He's done it all. I think this is the one where the rubber really hits the road for me. I need to learn to spend less time thinking about myself, what I have done, what I am doing, what I am going to do. And I need to spend more time meditating upon Jesus. And what he has done, what he is doing, what he is going to do. For he is the eternal son, there with the father and the spirit in the beginning. He's the word of God who brought the world into being. He is the God who did what no other God in any other religion would ever do and became a human and one of the lowest He became a human infant, unable to walk, talk, or feed himself for that first year or two, born into a poor family, born into a world that he knew full well would despise, hate, reject, and kill him. And then he hung on that cross, not because he had to, not because the nails were holding him there, not because he couldn't have called down angels to free him, but because he wanted to because he loved us. But he is the one who the grave could not hold. Death could not keep him. His father triumphantly raised him from the grave and later took him up into heaven, where he now sits by the father's side, reigning, ruling, waiting to return, building his church through his spirit, here on earth, in and through us. Let's not spend our time thinking about me, what I've done, what I am doing, what I will do. Daydreaming, pondering, what does God think of me today? Have I done enough to please him? Let's fix our eyes on Christ. We were saved by faith. We are being saved by faith. And we will be saved by faith and not by works. Let's pause. And then I'll lead us in a prayer. Father, we repent of how we love to find our worth in rules, keeping little rules that help us to think that you love us, that you accept us, that you think highly of us. We thank you so much that we do not need to do that. We have been saved by faith. We are to live now by faith. Help us, Father. Help us to trust Christ. Help us not to judge ourselves and each other, but to live out our lives in joyful faith, with our eyes not looking down at ourselves, but fixed on him. He has done it all. Amen.